This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There is a um, a really remarkable case that is going to be kicking off Monday in Kitchener. A guy named Robert Badgero. Now, the name may ring some bells with many of you. He is going to be making legal history when he goes on trial for murder for not the first time, not the second time, not the third time, but the fourth time for the same murder. Now, originally, he's a Hamilton guy. He was originally convicted of killing uh, Diane um, Warendowitz, and then an appeal overturned it, and then he had another trial, and there was a hung jury, and then there was a second hung jury. Well, joining us to chat about this, the woman who's going to be covering this, the columnist for The Spectator, Susan Claremont, uh, has finally, I think, recharged the batteries after the Bosma trial that she covered so well, and she is now going to be doing this one, so you're going to be reading lots and lots about this in the paper in the days ahead. And it's a fascinating trial. She joins us now, and we're going to have Susan give us a primer on what's going on. Susan, thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. So let's start right at with the most confusing part of this for most people. Uh, we have always, I think a lot of people have always believed that we can be tried one time for a crime and that's it. You get convicted now. If you're out on appeal, you get out on appeal. But how can someone be tried four times for the same offense? Yeah, well, it, as you said, this is precedent setting in Canada. Uh, Robert Badger is the first person in this country to be tried four times for the same first degree murder. And that can only happen, Scott, if there is new evidence. Uh, so, the, there, there are a couple ways that you can appeal. I mean, um, the, he, he won an appeal the first time around um, because an error in law had been made by the judge. But when you get to this stage, and at one point uh, a judge actually stayed the charges against Robert Badgerow, meaning that he was done with the justice system. He, After his third trial, a judge said, no more, we've done enough. But the case went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada because of some evidence that no other jury had been allowed to hear. Evidence that has been around since the beginning, but it had been ruled very early on that nobody could hear that evidence. And now the jury that will, will be chosen beginning on Monday in Kitchener will hear that evidence for the very first time. Before you tell us, and I don't know if you're allowed to, but before you tell us what that evidence or the outline of what that might be, take, yep. um, take a couple of minutes right now just to refresh people's minds, because many of them would have read about Robert Badger over the years, but many either haven't or have forgotten. So take a couple of minutes and, and give us basically the very Reader's Digest narrative of what this case is about. Yeah, it, it's a very old case. Um, Diane Rowendowitz was murdered in Stony Creek in 1981. She was a, a 23-year-old nursing assistant who uh, left a bar to make a very short walk home to her apartment and, and never made it. She was found uh, strangled and drowned in a creek behind her apartment building. Case went unsolved for 17 years. And it was only in 1998 that an arrest was made. And the person arrested was a family man, a steel worker named Robert Badgero. Uh, part of the reason for the arrest um, was the reliance on, on DNA evidence, something that didn't really exist back in 1981. Science wasn't doing DNA forensics in, in 1981. Um, but... Uh, one of the remarkable things about this case, Scott, is that Robert Badgero 
admits that he had sex with Diane Rowendowitz on the night she died. His DNA was found inside her body, and he has admitted in court, he's agreed that 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 is his DNA. But his story is that he met a, a pretty young woman at the bar. He didn't know her name. They had consensual sex in his car in the parking lot of of Malarkey's bar. And he said goodbye to her, and she headed home. And he says that somebody else killed her on her way home. It's, uh, yeah, and the the interesting thing, there's so many interesting things about this. I'm probably going to say the interesting thing about four times, so bear with me. But one of those things is that, as you said, Susan, this happened in 1981. And I'm, I'm trying to think, like, I honestly, I have a hard time sometimes thinking what I had for breakfast. I certainly have a hard time thinking what I did three or four days ago. And when you're now going to put together a criminal case, a first-degree murder case, you're going to need some kind of witnesses other than the science, although the science will definitely drive this. How can we expect witnesses to be able to get up on the stand under oath and reliably talk about something that happened 35 years ago with any sense that we're actually getting the real story? It's a really good question, Scott. And, and in fact, it's even worse than that. Some of the key witnesses have died since 1981. So at, at each successive trial, we're hearing more and more evidence being read into the record from testimony that took place years ago at the earlier trials as more and more witnesses either die or um, become ill and can't testify. So I expect to see even more of that at this trial than I have at previous uh, at the three previous trials. And you're right. I mean, memory is um, is uh, you know a tricky thing. And at some of the earlier trials, um, we've had evidence from from witnesses who truly believe that they are remembering things correctly and telling telling the truth, and yet. Um, it, it becomes clear as their testimony goes on that they're not remembering it correctly, that they have basic things like times and days and, and, and whatnot um, mixed up in their minds. So that is definitely an issue, and that was one of the reasons why the charges were initially stayed against Badro. Well, and one of the other really uh, quirky things, and that's probably the totally wrong word, but I'll use it, the lawyer, they, he has had the same lawyer for his three previous trials, or same lawyers. He's switched now, and the new lawyer, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, people around here may remember the lawyer or the biggest case from around here. It's the guy who uh, represented Sookwinder Dillon, who John Wells wrote about in the Poison series a long time ago, right? So, correct, um, yeah, Silverstein, his name is, yeah. Okay, so he's had, up until now, Badgero has had the same lawyer, so it would be really difficult for one of those lawyers, when the evidence is being read in from a deceased witness or someone who has spoken before, it would be hard for one of the original lawyers to say, I would have asked them something different, given another chance. But what happens if the new lawyer, who's never been involved in this before, says, you can't read in that evidence, because I would have cross-examined entirely differently and got completely different answers from this person. So that testimony is no longer fair. Well, that's a good question. I mean, um, 
you know, the, the Crown can, can call that evidence and the defense can challenge it. And, you know, it's a good point. I mean, this is a new defense lawyer for the first time in, in the history of this case. And, uh, which, uh, you know, in some ways really surprised me because, um, you think about the success that, uh, Badger's original lawyers, um, had, you know, they've, they've essentially kept their, their client out of jail for the most part over all these years, despite, you know, DNA evidence that, that seems to point to him as a killer. Um, so we'll see. I mean, this is a whole new dynamic. On the other end of it, on the other side of it, the Crown attorney, Cheryl Zick, she's an interesting story, too. And that's one of the reasons why I find this whole case so intriguing is there are so many interesting players in, involved in this case. Cheryl Zick was an articling student working in the Hamilton Crown Attorney's office at the time of the first Badger trial. Her job, she assisted uh, um, Crown Attorney, uh, the Crown Attorney who was prosecuting the case, and, and Cheryl Zick's job was basically to photocopy stuff. Um, she was a student. She was brand new to all this, so she photocopied and photocopied and read everything that she photocopied about the Badgero case. Fast forward to the second trial, she's the crown on the case. She had decided to become a crown attorney because of her experience articling at the first Badgero trial. So she becomes the crown for the second trial. She's the crown for the third trial. And she is, again, crowned for the fourth trial. She is the only lawyer involved with this case who has been on it since the very beginning. And she knows the facts of this case, the evidence of this case, inside out and backwards. Do we know who bailed on who on the Badgero side? Did he change lawyers of his volition or did they say, I'm sorry, we've done this enough, we're tired of it? I did ask that question. I, I, it's been a couple of years now, actually, since he switched lawyers, and I did a, a column at the time. And of course, there is, uh, um, you know, client confidentiality, so nobody would talk about that. So I don't know. Um, those lawyers had worked, you know, many, many years on this case, and perhaps they felt it was time to move on. Um, perhaps they felt that they had done all they could do. Perhaps Badgero thought that he would have better luck with someone else. I, I don't know. Okay, so right off the top, and I don't know legally what you're allowed to say, so you can uh, you can wa- walk through this as you can, but you mentioned that there was new evidence. Even roughly, even generally, do we have any idea? Are we allowed to say generally what the new I evidence is? I say what the new evidence is, yeah. And, and, and that's largely, there are some things that I can't talk about, Scott, because of... Um, because of uh, fair trial rights and uh, publication bans. But, um, but I can tell you that all of this, all of it has been written about in The Spectator before. Over 35 years, we've covered every angle of this. So much of this is already in the public domain. All of it really is in the public domain. Um, so the new evidence that will be presented at this case, and it will be up to the jury to decide whether this is a true fact or not. Um, the evidence revolves around a 911 call that was made to police in the days following Diane's murder. Uh, a man who wouldn't identify himself called police and gave um, very uh, intimate details of the murder scene. Details that police believe only the killer 
could know or someone who had spoken to the killer. So we know that, and previous trials know that. And in fact, um, previous juries have heard the 911 call, and they've heard evidence from various witnesses who, who know Robert Badrow, who testified uh, almost a 50-50 split, by the way, um, that it was his voice or that it wasn't his voice. So what's new this time around is that the Crown Attorney will present evidence of where that call came from. And the evidence will be that, that police traced the call to a phone booth, a phone booth outside of DeFasco, outside the very part of DeFasco where Robert Badger was working at the exact time that the phone call was made. Hmm. So it will be up to the jury to decide if that trace was accurate and correctly done and whether or not, in fact, that was Robert Badger who made that call. And then whether that all means that he is the killer or not. We've got about a minute and a half here, so i got to go through a couple more things really quickly. Is her family still alive? Her mother and father passed away a number of years ago. She does have a brother. He uh, lives on the West Coast. He attended the first trial, but has not been here for... Uh, the second or third trial, and I don't expect to see him here for the fourth trial. So, so who is really moving this along then? Because, you know, it it seems unusual to me that the Crown's office would be this persistent. Maybe they are, but is there someone who is propelling this forward? It's the Crown's office. It is, it's, okay. It's Cheryl Zick. It's the Crown attorney who started by photocopying documents for this for this case the very first time around, and she wants to see justice done for Diane, and she believes that that Robert Badro is responsible for her murder. What has Robert Badro been doing between all these trials? What does he still work at Defasco, or does he still what does he do? Uh, he he lives in the community here in Hamilton. He's never moved away, although he could have. Um, he lives here. He, um, I don't know. He was working with his family business for a while. He's had some health issues. I understand. Um, but I, I see him out and about. Um, strangely, I uh, bumped into him a couple of times at the John Sapinka courthouse while I was covering the Bosma trial. He was there for, for some stuff related to his own trial. And, uh, we bumped into each other having coffee and, got caught up on things where where things were at with his case. You you and he chatted? Yes, we we've known each other for a long a, time. Quite a long while now. Um and uh and yes, as odd as it sounds, uh we chat and um he has promised me for many years that when all of this is over, he will sit down and and do an interview with me so i i wow. hope, you know hope to hold him to that no that, that that's i'm shocked by that to be honest with you because even though you know everyone says about the messenger it's rare that people don't get mad at the messenger so i'm, I'm well, surprised I'm by sure that he, i'm not sure i'm his favorite person in the world <laughs> but um but he he certainly he uh he always says hello he always uh, talks to me um he knows i'm going to be covering his trial starting on Monday, and, uh, um, you know, he's cordial. Last thing before I let you go, um, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to even ask this question because it's just such a brain 
Fryer. But what happens if we end up with another hung jury? Oh, I, you know what? I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that. They couldn't um, possibly go with another trial. I mean, at, at what point, I guess the question is, at what point do you have to say, we have done everything we can to seek justice here, and at some point we just have to say, this case is just not happening? And and that's an excellent point, and that's, that's part of what um, this trial and this case represent in the Canadian legal system. Lawyers across the country are, are looking at this case um, because it, it has focused a spotlight on those sorts of issues. You know, to what lengths should the justice system go? Um, and, you know, where do you draw the line? And what are Robert Badgerow's rights? Mm. And, you know, what is the role of, of a jury? I mean, we've, we've heard from three juries now. Um, do we... Do, you know, some people would ask, do we need to, to hear from a fourth? The Supreme Court of Canada says yes. Yeah, because you know what? I mean, we, uh, many people in our society, Susan, jump to the conclusion that someone who's on trial is guilty. But it, And I don't know, I mean, you know the case way better than I do or anyone else. But if he's not guilty, and we got to go, but this seems like such an enormous, onerous stress on his life or taxing if he's not and I, I mean I'm, I'm not going to stand here and say he is or he isn't that's what a court is for but if he's not guilty this seems like it's an awful lot no matter what the verdict is Robert Badger's life will, will never be what it was before his arrest you have is it tomorrow in the paper you have a longish primer on this I do yes uh, just setting the scene getting people caught up for um, for the first day of jury selection on Monday. So get the paper tomorrow, go online at thespec.com. You can read Susan's uh, primer there, and there's a lot more than we've even had time to talk about today. Susan, hey, thanks for doing this, and we will catch up as this is going along and um, and see where this historic case is, is off to as we get going. For sure. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Susan. That is Susan Claremont. You read her stuff uh, in the paper all the time. You read her in the Bosma trial, and now you'll be reading her for the Fifth, a fourth, oh, now I'm losing track, the fourth Badgero first-degree murder trial, which is, if that sounds like a lot, if you're just joining us, yes, that is. It's historic in the number. No one has ever in Canada gone on trial for four trials for first-degree murder for the same crime. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Who is the greatest boxer of all time? Of course, I mean, many of you immediately, the answer immediately, Muhammad Ali, greatest boxer of all time, no question. Some of you will say Rocky Marciano. Some of you may throw out Sugar Ray Robinson. Some of you may come up with other names altogether. All of you are wrong. All of you are wrong. The greatest boxer of all time is a guy who rose from abject poverty in the streets of Philadelphia, became one of the richest men in the world, won the heavyweight championship despite being undersized a number of times, fought every fighter who looked unbeatable, saved the United States honor from the Soviet Union and their steroid-filled champion, and then finally had his last fight at age 60 or something and then went off into the sunset. The greatest fighter of all time, of course, the guy I'm describing, is Rocky Balboa. Now, I know that Rocky Balboa is not a real person, but he was, he is the charter member of the Fictional Athletes Hall of Fame. Yes, there is such a thing. The Fictional Athletes Hall of Fame. Kirk Butchner is the 
guy who runs this, who came up with the concept and now runs the website and runs the voting and does all this kind of stuff, he's a Burlington guy, and he joins us now by phone. Kirk, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Good. And I, did I mangle your last name? Uh, Buckner. But Buckner. Okay. All right. Like Bill. <laughs> Uh, like Bill, different spelling, and uh, I've only had a few ground balls go through my legs since I've run <laughs> national television. I got to tell you, when when I heard about this for the first time, and I actually I, I was late to the dance on this because you've been around for three years or so now. When I heard about the fictional athletes Hall of Fame, and we're going to explain it in a minute, I actually laughed out loud. I thought this was such a hilariously brilliant idea that it made me laugh. Is that? Does that response, is that okay with you, or is that the opposite of the response? Do you want to be taken really seriously for this? No, I mean, absolutely. Smile away. Uh, I, I, I laugh out loud every time I sort of think of new people who might be a great fit. So, uh, no, I, I love that response. Absolutely. Where is, before we get to the idea, it, it, it is a brilliant idea. I, I mean, I say that le- legitimately. Where did the idea come from? How do you come up with something like this? Uh, bottom of a Jack Daniels bottle, mostly. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, but you teed me up perfectly, though. Uh, really, the origin of the idea came from uh, Sylvester Stallone's actual induction to the National uh, uh, Boxing Hall of Fame. in Like uh, the real uh, Boxing Hall of Fame. Right, yeah. Uh, well, one of the ones that claim to be. There's about three different variations thereof. Uh, but this one is the one based in upstate New York. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, journalists who were very upset with that induction, calling it a farce. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard. Why? And because more people watched Rocky fight than Muhammad Ali fight, the statue of Rocky Balboa in Philadelphia that the city begged to keep afloat is much bigger than any other boxer statue I know of. Yeah, I can't think of another one. No, I can't think of another one. So the idea then becomes, you, you, you're you having this discussion, you're thinking about the fact of, okay, should Sylvester Stallone, a.k.a. Rocky, be in the real Boxing Hall of Fame? And then what? You just start to think, well, there's a lot of fictional athletes that are, at least in our imagination, pretty darn good. Yeah, absolutely. I just went through the Rolodex of uh, virtually every sports movie, sports TV show I ever watched in my life, came up with a pile of preliminary nominees. And uh, just put it out there and let the people decide uh, who they thought was was the best after Rocky. Because uh, had Rocky not going gone in first, it would have been a travesty, and I would have probably just canned the whole thing. <laughs> okay, so this is the idea. Then behind this is these people. I mean, obviously, it's the fictional athletes Hall of Fame, so they're fictional, they're made up. But in the scope of the movie, in the scope of whatever the venue was that they were acting or their character was performing they were the best at their sport. Because honestly, almost every athlete that's ever appeared in a movie about sports has always been the best at their sport. Uh, sometimes. A lot of them. Uh, a lot of them. Yeah, well, a lot of them, yes. Uh, some, some of my favorites never did particularly that well. <laughs> like uh, who? Uh, Sam Malone. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, who actually, the first time he's not a finalist. He was the first two years. Uh, didn't get a lot of support. I, I guess uh, all those, there's a lot of Red Sox hate going on. <laughs> but as, as cheers, well, as cheers went on, uh, sort of they painted him as a somewhat successful uh, relief pitcher beginning, and then they made fun of his lack thereof uh, career. But I mean, uh, they what was it a five year career with the Red Sox when Cheers was canceled, or not canceled, or when Cheers went off the air? Uh, Sports Illustrated actually did a piece, uh, a whole piece based on Sam Malone's actual career. 
Now, do they have to? Okay, and so so that's a perfect example of the kind of thing you're talking about. So every year, well, first of all, let me back up. When you started this, you came up with what, like 300 names of fictional athletes who could be considered? Yes, uh, which will probably once expand to about 400 for the next preliminary ballot. Okay, and then what happens with this? What happens with all these names? Uh, what happens with all these names is they go on a preliminary list. Uh, I mirror a lot of what uh, the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame does, who actually, t- just yesterday, ironically or coincidentally enough, uh, put out their uh, preliminary list of 97 people. Uh, they keep it very transparent, and then they pair it down to semifinalists and then finalists. Uh, the only difference here is just everyone can vote from beginning to end. Okay, and so it starts with a big list. You've whittled it down to now 15 people. Now, first of all, before we get to the 15, I keep backing up. Who are the people who are already in as players in your Fictional Athletes Hall of Fame in the first two years? Uh, first two years, uh, it was a baseball sweep initially. Uh, Crash Davis. Uh, yep, from Bull Durham. Durham. Yep, uh, Ricky Wild Thing Vaughn. Major League. And, yep, uh, Roy Hobbs, natural. Of course, yeah. Okay, so they get in the first year. The next year... Uh, the year after that, uh, then it went to, uh, more of a hockey-centric with Slapshot getting two inductees with Reggie Dunlop and the Hansons. <laughs> and actually, you could argue that it was that it was a triple header because Happy Gilmore failed, failed Boston Bruin wannabe. That's right. The, uh, the only person ever to be kicked out of a game for stabbing someone with his skate. <laughs> we we know our happy Gilmore around here. It's okay. So this year now you're waiting and the voting is going on, and I've got the list up in front of me of the athletes yes. who are eligible. And some of these are some of these are hilarious. Okay, Apollo Creed, of course, everyone knows from Rocky. He's eligible. Benny the Jet Rodriguez from the Sandlot is eligible. Uh, he went on after the Sandlot. We heard in the movie to what play for the Dodgers? Did he? Uh, that yeah, it was implied that he's pretty good. All right, Bobby uh, Boucher, pretty good Dodger. Yeah. Bobby Boucher from Waterboy. <laughs> <laughs> which is a great selection. Uh, here's one that I got to think is going to get in eventually. Daniel LaRusso, the Karate Kid, Ralph Macchio uh, from the uh, Karate Kid. Yeah. Well, actually, too, uh, Mr. Miyagi, because we also do c- contributors. Mr. Miyagi got in last year as a contributor. All right. Al Bundy, who I didn't yeah. even think of as an athlete, but played high school football, right, in, in Married with Children? Uh, he he tells you more about that four touchdown game than <laughs> probably any actual NFL player who ever had four touchdowns in the game. Uh, Rob Lowe makes it onto the list. Dean Youngblood from the epic hockey movie Youngblood, which which uh, is either the most loved or the most hated hockey movie of all time, depending on your point of view. I, I I don't even know. Sometimes I go back and forth. Having said that, I actually own a Hamilton Mustangs jersey. Uh, well, you, uh, uh, I would hope Youngblood. so. I would hope so. Uh, Ricky Bobby, <laughs> Will Ferrell from Talladega Nights. Uh, good to see him on the list. And my personal favorite, because it's often overlooked what a great athlete this guy was, Forrest Gump is on the list. Yes. Three sports yes. he was great at. Well, I mean, uh, uh, Letterman, you know, under Bear Bryant. I mean, so that, that that's very, you know, very impressive. Pretty much the real pioneer of, of uh, endurance running. Yep. And, and a world-class Olympic ping-pong champion. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Uh, so how does this all... Sorry, go ahead. No, uh, no, you just broke down so much barriers between the United States and China. I mean, like, <laughs> that alone gets them get some, some extra points, I would think. So how does this work? People just go on to the website then, and they, how many ballots, how many votes can they actually make? Uh, for the final round, they can, they can choose uh, five of the fictional athletes, three of the fictional contributors, and one veteran category. Uh, veterans, basically anyone prior to 1970. 
okay, in a, like a movie or a, a show or something prior to 1970, or that they yeah. represented a time prior to 1970? Uh, no, it was a, a movie or a TV show prior to 1970. But they're pretty much all movies. There really wasn't any good sports TV shows uh, prior to 1970. Clearly Rocky, because you dem- demanded that he get in first, would be your favorite. But after him... Do you have a favorite on the list? Is there somebody that you are really, really hoping is going to make it in, either this year or some year down the road? Uh, well, out of the list this year, I think if uh, I've, I've got, like, one favorite. Uh, it's got to be Bobby Boucher, just for what he did in the Bourbon Bowl. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> oh, he, well, he, he forced an opposing coach to only play, only play defense. It's, uh, it's how, remarkable. How it's totally remarkable. And anything where he wins something called the Bourbon Bowl, I mean, since this was inspired by Jack Daniels, I know it's a loose cousin, but how can I not sort of be a fan of that? Uh, possibly down the road, I would love to see uh, a representative from uh, one of my favorite shows as a kid, uh, The White Shadow. Uh, I would love to see that occur at of one course. time. But, of course. Uh, uh, I, I haven't seen that on reruns forever, so I think that's sort of lost in the next generation. Yeah, until it makes its way back on TV, the uh, the computer generation is probably not going to cast too many ballots for Ken Reeves. He was a semifinalist twice. Really? Really? Well, yeah, in the contributor category. Hey, what yes. what about, I mean, one of the interesting things, and we, we, you know, we have a lot of fun with this, because it's supposed to be fun. I mean, I don't think anyone's taking this terribly, terribly seriously. But at the same time, have any of the athletes who, or the, sorry, have any of the actors who portrayed athletes ever jumped on board with this and contacted you or done anything about the fact that suddenly now their their creation is being talked about for a Hall of Fame? Uh, over Twitter, yes. Uh, so three-time semifinalist, because every time we have our semifinalists announced, then we just sort of like make it, make little bits uh, of that on Twitter. Uh, so Michael O'Keefe, who played uh, Danny Noonan in Caddyshack, and the one who did sink the winning putt. Uh, so he did try to get a hashtag going of Vote Noonan. I didn't really I didn't really work because he's not a finalist, but <laughs> hey, he tried. Incidentally, though, uh, I, I have to mention, though, Caddyshack has, has put in one person, Carl Spackler, last year as a contributor. Bill Murray, of but, course, yep. Yes, but I don't know if you noticed, one of the one of the finalists this year in the contributor category is the Gopher. <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. Why wouldn't it be? I, I wonder, just before I let you go, because we're almost out of time, ha, is there any thought of expanding this? Because, I mean, as you get more attention, and I understand you've actually last year had... Well, 25,000 votes, something like that. So it's actually getting some traction. People are aware of this. Do you pl- would you ever think of expanding this kind of thing, doing entire movies? Or, or do you look at it and you go, you know what? No, it's just it's exactly what we're wanting right now as it is. I, actually, that's a, that's a pretty good idea to sort of like make a, just sort of like a movie or actual program category. Uh, I have been in talks with the fine people in Charlestown to actually build the hall. <laughs> really? You've actually called someone? No, Charlestown, what's where the Chiefs play? I know, I know, but you've actually <laughs> called someone? I didn't know. I mean, you know, maybe, because, uh, you know what? As crazy as it sounds, Kirk, this would actually, I think this would actually be something that people would actually drop in and see. I really do. Well, I, I on, a, on a road trip one time, I saw the Circular Saw Museum. I'd like to think this could do better than that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would. Um, I would think it would, because here's the thing. As you're thinking about these athletes, as you're, and, and I say athletes with quotes, but as you're thinking about these people, there are so many times that when we are doing something that we quote these people. We do. I oh, mean, uh, absolutely. Up here, 
I would bet you that almost everybody who's ever played hockey at one time or another has joked about putting on the foil. And old-time hockey. Exactly, and, and old-time hockey. And I would bet you that anybody who's watched a baseball pitcher throw a really bad pitch, they've used the just a bit outside line. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and with putting, you know, be the ball. You know, from from Chevy Chase in Caddyshack, and you can go through the list. There's probably 500 or 600 quotes that pop up all the time from fictional characters. It's perfect. I I think you would, you know, you joke around, but I think a museum like this would actually get traction. I think people would drop in. Uh, well, anyone who wants to build it, they know where to find it. <laughs> well, there you go. Listen, it is uh, it is a. I think honestly, it is a really really funny, really good, really clever idea, and I would encourage anyone to um, to go take a look. It's well, the, you know what the uh, the website name is is quite long. Just type into Google search uh, "fictional athlete hall of fame." You'll I'm sure you'll stumble upon it. Uh, fictitious athlete. Fictitious. Sorry, fictitious athlete hall of fame. Yeah, I've got to. Um, get that one right. That's uh, that's a big deal. Uh, listen, it is uh, Kirk Buckner, who is a Burlington guy. I went to M.M. Robinson and is now living out in Alberta doing this. Kirk, thanks for doing this tonight. Really funny. Really appreciate the oh, time. It's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. That is, uh, go look at it. It's Fictitious Athlete Hall of Fame. It is a lot of fun, and I guarantee you, you've seen a few of these movies. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Tomorrow, here at Tim Hortons Field, the CFL Hall of Fame game, which is an annual event, hasn't been here in a while, though. We had it for the longest time. We had it because we had the Hall of Fame, and then all of a sudden the CFL decided, you know what, no one's coming to this thing. This Hamilton is kind of not really buying in, so it was moved around. Well, now it is back, and Rick Zamperin is actually at the Hall of Fame induction dinner. He's just stepped out for a few minutes. He joins us now. Rick, how are you? Hey, good, Scott. How are you? Good. Hey, before we get to football, I got, I've got another trivia question for you. See if you Ooh. can get this. Okay. What happened at Cops Coliseum? It was then Cops Coliseum twenty nine years ago tonight. Uh, I'm going to guess Gretzky to Lemieux, Game Three, Canada Russia, Canada Cup. You are bang on. I cannot believe that that is almost three decades ago. Twenty nine wow, years ago amazing. tonight. That Holy was, cow. and you know what? The most amazing. Well, one of the amazing things about that that game, there were fewer people at that game than there were for the Memorial Cup championship game which is still the biggest uh biggest crowd for an ohl or for a junior hockey game ever i can't believe that but wow that's amazing 29 years ago tonight so anyone who was watching that game and was very proud of our brand new arena in hamilton that was that was then uh let's let's move on to the football that's that's what we want to talk about we got the hall of fame game tomorrow um before we do the game let's talk about the hall of fame class yeah relative to other classes in other years and other people who have gone in uh, the one year we had, I remember it was Mike Pringle, uh, pinball. No, Mike Pringle, Darren, or Doug Flutie, and uh, I can't remember who the third person was. And it was like the biggest class ever. How does this class rank? How does this class stack up as a Hall of Fame class? You know, I, I like this class because you have you have a lot of diversity. You have maybe one of the best interior defensive linemen who ever played the game, and Big Doug Brown, and. You know, Rodney Harding, who just exudes, you know, toughness and, you know, lengthy career with a few different teams who, you know, tasted some success, Grey Cup-wise. 
Don McDonald, uh, you know, uh, an old Saskatoon Hilltop director and president, uh, kind of brings that, you know, that amateur football feel to the mix. Uh, Daryl Mookie Mitchell, you know, one of the great receivers of his generation, still holds the single season record for most receptions in a year. And, you know, James West, who had a, you know, great run with the Stamps and Bombers and the Lions, said really good. I wouldn't say it's a, uh, you know, an all-star kind of, you know, flutie Pringle kind of class. But I think there's a lot of intrigue and a lot of great uh, greatness uh, on this night uh, at this ceremony. I didn't warn Rick ahead of time, so I'm going to catch you really cold on this one. But who <laughs> who in the league right now that is playing in the league right now would you say is the surest future Hall of Famer? Wow, that's a good question. There's a few guys that come to the fore, and I think, the way he's played for nearly two decades, you got to put Henry Burris in that category. Uh, Ricky Ray is a, a definite guy who's going to be, you know, in his first year of eligibility, going to be inducted as well. They might actually go in together if they both retire at the same time. Those two guys really spring uh, to the fore because, you know, they've been in the league for so long. They've won great cups. They've won most outstanding player awards. Henry Burris just winning it last year. Uh, you know, they're at the quarterback position, the marquee position in the CFL. Um, you know, I think everyone after those two guys uh, would have to come next because those two have carried the mantle for so long. They've been professional, uh, you know, courteous, uh, carried the torch in the Canadian Football League in, in the new millennium. And I think they're, you know, there's, there's no more deserving player than those two guys. I don't think anybody, honestly, would uh, take issue with either of those. I mean, and there are others. There are guys, I mean, there are some young players right now that aren't at that point yet because they've got to stay healthy and they've got to put up some numbers. But, man, there are some young players in this league right now that you say, if you can just hold it together for five or six more years, uh, you're there. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of talent in this league all of a sudden. Yeah, and, and then you get those guys that, you know, there's, there's a certain debate surrounding them. Uh, you know, a Chad Owens on this Ticats team, you know, has he done enough over mm. his career to garner Hall of Fame, uh, you know, status or, or at least an argument for that? I, I would I would lean towards, yeah, because, you know, he holds a number of records. He's won multiple great caps. He was, you know, uh, and, and probably still is a star in this league. He's dominated at his position for, you know, the bulk of his uh, generational time in this league. So, and, and there's so many stories from, you know, coast to coast, Darian Durant's another guy. Uh, you know, Kevin Glenn is probably a really intriguing argument. He's never won the big game or the Grey Cup, but he, he certainly has the longevity. He's he's been a winner at certain you know stops, just hasn't won that championship game. So there's so many compelling uh, you know Hall of Fame caliber guys out there. It's just come voting day. Uh, for the Hall of Fame committee, it, it all depends on how they're feeling that particular day, I guess. Well, and if you actually get votes based on how many jerseys you own, Kevin Glenn gets in on the first ballot. I think oh, he's got what, one team left that he hasn't played he's got for? one to go. Yeah, barring another U.S. expansion, he's got one team to go. Which is what? <laughs> I can't remember now. Which is the one team? The Edmonton Eskimos. All right. Well, you give, yeah. you know, give him time. It, you see guys sign a one-day contract at the end of their career. I would love to see him just do that, just to get the shirt and move off into the sunset. Well, yeah, I, I do have the feeling that this is probably his last go-round in the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, although they do have Matt Nichols, and, and you never know if Mike Riley goes down uh, with an injury, you know, knock on wood, because I don't want to see it happen. He's one of the great players of this league, but uh, Edmonton could say, hey, KG, you want to come over here and uh, let's make it nine. Rick, we've got a few minutes here, and I want to go through both teams really quickly, because last week, the game is uh, Hamilton versus Montreal, by the way, tomorrow night. Uh, last week, Hamilton, which looked so good for a few weeks, Looked like a mess. What happened? 
Man, if I had the answer to that, I think I'd probably be, you know, at the lottery stop right now getting my uh, Lotto Max ticket, which, by the way, $60 million, uh, tomorrow night. So maybe I might do this. You if, could if buy I the CFL. It, if I nailed it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know what? It's it, we, We've seen some patterns. Uh, number one, you know, the slow starts yes. don't help. And I asked Andy Fantuz about this, like, what the heck's going on? And he's just saying, you know, it's it's one of those things. And, and I'm not sure if that's, you know, a legitimate answer, but it is one of those things. They have all the talent in the world especially offensively, uh, and they have some good pieces on defense and, and a pretty solid special team. But for the last several weeks, the offense has been up and down, and at the start of the game, it's more down than up. The defense has been you know, leaky at times. They're still amongst the league leaders and sacks of the getting to the quarterback. The secondary's had some issues, and special teams, I'm sorry to say, but man, oh man, what has happened to that unit? Because it was the star of the league for three, four, five seasons in a row, and the past several weeks, it's been, what is going on? Block punts, undisciplined play, uh, penalties, all that kind of stuff. It really hasn't been a cohesive unit. So, and, and speaking of undisciplined, you know, this team's still taking too many penalties, bad penalties at bad times, and that's always going to kick you in the rear end. Uh, Rick, by the way, for those who don't know, is the sports director here, and he also hosts the fifth quarter after every Ticat game right here on 900 CHML, the best post-game show in the market in the area in Canada, so tune in here. But Rick, that makes me ask the question, last week after the game, things are looking so good for the Ticats. Yeah, they have bad starts, but they turn it on, they have comeback after comeback, mm-hmm. and Zach Caleros looks like nothing can go wrong, and then this happens, and it's the Argos to make it worse. What was the response on the fifth quarter? Were the fans angry, or were they puzzled, or were they disappointed? What was what was the general overriding sense? I think it was a little bit of of, of all of that. I think the overriding sense was one of um, you know a big question mark, like what kind of team do we have? What is our identity? Yes, we have all these stars on offense, and we have our star quarterback back, and you know our defense should be as good as last year, but it's not. And what's happened to our special team? I think their Ticats fans, especially after last week's game, is thinking, you know, what kind of team are we? Are we just a team that's going to be up and down? Because over the last several weeks now, it's been win-loss, win-loss, win-loss. And that trend can't continue. If you want to host a playoff game in the East Division or if you want to win the East Division, you can't continue to get, uh, you know, up and down and, and inconsistent performances. So there was some anger. There was some befuddlement. There was some head-scratching in the fifth quarter. And, and if... Cats keep playing the way they are. I think that's just going to continue from here on in. Okay, so you use words like confusion and befuddlement and anger. I think you were describing, actually, the Montreal Alouettes practice week leading up to this game. (laughs) Uh, You could throw in a bunch of other words. Have you ever seen anything in professional football like we've been seeing at the Montreal facility this week? We've, the short answer is no. You know, we've seen training camp fights. Uh, you know, uh, Papelbon versus Harper last year. You know, little incidents here and there, but this that are quickly bold- that are quickly yeah. made up for the players. Then quickly make up and they yeah. say, "Okay, we're all together moving forward." Yeah, this has you know, there's a deep seated issue here, and it's obviously not just you know two guys. There's several guys involved here. When you're you know talking about Raheem Cato, Deron Carter, Kenny Stafford, Nick Lewis. Uh, you know, obviously Kevin Glenn, now that he's gone, you know, there was a, some eye-opening tweets that he and Nick Lewis shared. Uh, it's an absolute mess. And, and, you know, this team can go one of two ways. Number one, they could say, hey, you know, uh, to heck with all this. We're going to rally and, and play some really good football. You know, my sense is it's going to go the exact opposite because when things don't go right on the field and no team has ever played a perfect game, at least not through my eyes, uh, and things go awry, 
tempers are going to flare, things are going to get heated. We might see something on the sideline tomorrow night if the Alouettes <laughs> start to get their doors blown off, especially early on in the game. Uh, it's going to be it could be WWE for all we know. Yeah, the NFL has had cameras trained on the sideline for the anthems lately. Uh, the CFL is having them trained on the sideline tomorrow night to see if anyone slugs anybody else on the alley. <laughs> but, but I should back up for a second because just in case anyone is wondering what the heck we're talking about, take 20 seconds and explain what this whole story is about. Well, um, you know, Kevin Glenn gets traded uh, to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Raheem Cato is now the starting quarterback in Montreal. And obviously guys like Deron Carter and Kenny Stafford and certainly Nick Lewis were big KG fans, so, you know, big supporters of him. They like the veteran leadership. They like the consistency in his game. And as Rakeem Cato is now assuming the starting reins, because really there's nobody else left in Montreal to, to play quarterback. I mean, they could shove in the, uh, the uh, you know, athletic therapist and they'd probably do a better job than the backup <laughs> guy. Um, but obviously Cato is not on the same page as some of the other guys who probably don't respect him as much as they did with Kevin Glenn. And uh, whether it's a clique or, or, or whatever it is, uh, man, they're not on the same page. Not on the same page, and it has really turned ugly at practice with shouting matches and shoving matches and guys just going off and barking at each other. And, and uh, you know, it ultimately led to Cato being ushered off the field, um, and uh, and that was the end of his practice, basically. Well, and even today, apparently, uh, he had a shouting match with the reporter, Herb Zerkowski, for the Montreal Gazette and was escorted off the field by Anthony Calvillo at Tim Horton's field today. So it's just, wow. it, it's bizarre. But as far as I let you go, we got 30 seconds here. Uh, yeah. This would seem to be the kind of team that is raw meat, that is perfect fodder for the Ticats, and that this is going to be a nice, easy opportunity for Hamilton to pick up two points. But would you not have said the exact same thing about the Argos who were missing Ricky Ray and things were falling apart last week and then we saw what happened? So do you look at this and say, yeah, this is this is glorious for Hamilton, or do you say this is exactly the kind of game that over the years we've seen the Ticats kind of pooch on? Well, it is. Yeah, this is the prototypical trap game where a team will underestimate the other team because the team that's coming in has issues or injuries or new personnel and you kind of take the game for granted and just think uh, you know we got the two points in our back pockets but you know the one thing that i'm kind of uh buoyed by is the fact that you know they're just coming off a loss where they may have taken the argos for granted with dan lefevre at quarterback uh they didn't play well especially you know in the second half and, and certainly the first quarter uh, but all the guys I talked to this week are saying, you know, we've we got to stop this inconsistent play. We're not listening to the noise in Montreal, which, you know, I kind of take that with a grain of salt. They obviously know what's going on. But as long as they don't focus on that, as long as they don't focus on, you know, this is a team that's coming in that is, you know, the lesser likes, they still got to go out there and perform to get the two points. And if they don't go out there and play their game, Montreal is more than capable of snapping up you know, an upset victory here. they got a good enough defense and, you know, fairly solid special teams that if they hang around, um, you know, in the Canadian Football League, we've seen some crazy uh, comebacks and crazy games, so anything could happen. Well, and if that happens, well, regardless, either way, you're going to tune in after the game. Everybody is tomorrow night right here on 900 CHML to the fifth quarter with Rick. But if that happens... Oh man, set the recorders because that'll be an entertaining show. If uh, if Hamilton doesn't beat Montreal tomorrow night with everything that's been going on, Rick, I... I you will have an interesting evening if that is the case, my friend. Scott, the fifth quarter would be as ugly as an Alouette's practice. <laughs> you, I will release you now to go back in and enjoy the rest of the Hall of Fame dinner. Thanks for doing this, Rick. Appreciate it. Excellent. Take care, Scott. Rick Zamper, and again, catch him tomorrow night right after the game, right here. Get your dialing fingers ready. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.